Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, dear. Hi, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart, still. <laughs> and I'm still Gary Bain. That's yeah. a relief. That's very good, isn't it? Now, uh, what, what's the subject of today's podcast? And it's got a great title, isn't it? I, I, I have to say, I'm very proud of this title. Read it, it with the right emphasis, Gary. Get the emphasis right. 102. That's the number of the podcast. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Jellico, the man who wasn't Nelson. <gasps> dan, dan, dan. You Notes. didn't read it. Yes, so this is about uh, good old John Delico. It's um, now a lot of it. I'll do a bit of a preamble. Reputations, reputations. That they're amazing things. I mean, uh, they're strange, aren't they? And um, I don't know. Um, nowadays, when we look back at historical figures, we seem to we seem to revel in getting the wrong end of the stick. We seem to get things wrong. Uh, Haig is the classic example of this. Uh, there's an admiration for the slick, the shallow, the flashy, in preference to the solid virtues of intelligence, courage, selfless commitment and loyalty, as exemplified by your good self, Gary. Yeah, I'm a bit like a faithful puppy, following you around and sniffing at your crotch. You said you had a response. I did, yes. <laughs> now, nowhere is this better illustrated than in the widespread failure to recognise the worth of the service given by Admiral Sir John Jellicoe in the Great War. Yeah, he commanded the Great Fleet, the greatest assembly of ships that Britain's ever ever had. Uh, and when war started, what do you think? The great British public, war with Germany, war with Germany. What do you think the great British public thought would happen, Gary? Well, they thought there was going to be this massive clash between the great fleets and that uh, it would be some sort of Trafalgar-style battle and that uh, we, the plucky Brits, would sweep the German high seas fleet uh, from the seas. With just a couple of sailors with sort of arm wounds that, that, and everybody else, all the Germans dead. Yeah, but instead, sort of nothing happened. Nothing really. happened. Did it happen quickly? Um, uh, nothing happened very quickly. <laughs> now, and lasted a long time. Now, while the British Expeditionary Force battled against the mighty German army on the Western Front... Purple, prose, warning... The uh, much-vaunted fleet seemed to be doing very little or nothing at all, in fact... Well, yeah, I mean, they swept. They did part of their role, didn't they? They swept the uh, the seas 
clean of commerce raiders. They uh, destroyed the German uh, Eastern uh, von Spee's fleet. They um, they controlled the seas. But as for the big battle, no, all. didn't happen. So certainly not uh, uh, early in the war. The uh, Der Tag, oh, as the Germans would refer to it, that, the day. <gasps> It finally arrived on the 31st of May 1916 with the Battle of Jutland. Nothing but disappointment, really. Uh, for the British, uh, tremendous loss of ships, men. And there's a. The, the, well, how do people react? Well, you've in, got to blame our... someone, haven't you, in our culture? There's someone's got to be to blame. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Jellicoe's the obvious culprit. Well, he was in charge, wasn't he? Um, well, it wasn't only that. They referred to Jellicoe's timidity that uh, that was at fault, in sharp contrast to the daring do of oh. his uh, dashing subordinate, Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty. If oh, only Beatty had been in command only. at Jutland, then a new Trafalgar might have changed the course of the whole war. Absolute bloody nonsense. I don't know why you spout this rubbish, Gary. Well, mainly because... Um, I wrote it. You wrote it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is just bloody rubbish, isn't it? Uh, anyway, before we get onto that, we must reach back. What's that that sound they have? <laughs> we must go to the past to find out who was John Jellicoe. Well, John Jellicoe was born on the 5th of December, 1859. Oh, it's only two days ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, his family had... I hope you don't well, hear any slurping noise. When I, when I say only two days ago, uh, and a few hundred years. Uh, his family had a variety of naval connections, and he was sent as a cadet to the training ship Britannia at, uh, at the tender age of 12. 12. Yeah, well, no, that's par for the course. That's that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, do you, do you, at that time, it's, uh, it's amazing to think, but there's still a lot of... The age of sail going on. I mean, the, the ships are becoming... Yeah, it would be. Uh, uh, how do you think Jellicoe did? Well, he, he thrived. Thrived. And, uh, he, he passed out in 1874. His instruction had by no means finished at that point, uh, but by dutiful attention to his studies and duties, he did very well as he progressed through the ranks of junior officers. Yeah, he specialises in uh, gunnery and he catches the eye of Captain John Fisher, who was then commanding uh, the HMS Excellent. That's the gunnery school. Uh, so now, this is an important... This is very like Haig with that chap. Uh, yeah, he gets a sponsor. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's unofficial, but they're like, they're like patrons, aren't they? And uh, we don't have any patrons, do we? Oh, no, Matt... <laughs> He's like a daddy to us. He's like a patron saint. Yeah. Or sugar daddy. That's what I'm not going there. <laughs> anyway, Jellicoe spends the next few years uh, sort of divided between postings to experimental ships and ashore at the ex- uh, on the uh, at the excellent on Whale Island. Now, yeah, I, I wasn't sure where it, Whale Island was, it, but it's, it's in Baltimore Harbour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big, ugly place. Um, in 1889, he was acting as uh, assistant to Fisher, uh, who, his sponsor, who was by this time director of naval ordnance at the Admiralty. So he's doing well as well. Uh, yeah, well, well, Fisher rises to be first sea lord. Uh, and uh, at this time, he's not clinically insane, is he, later <laughs> in life? Uh, now, Jellico, well, is, is he the guy who locked himself in a hotel? Uh, basically, yeah. yeah uh, during the Dardanelles. Yeah. Sorry, I've, I've digressed. Yeah. Is that annoying? No, not in the slightest. I like a bit of a digression, as you know, 
He said digressing. <laughs> Where are we? Oh yeah. Uh, well, what is it? What is it that marks Jellicoe out? I mean, it's not. It's not a vibrant person. He's not a loud person or anything like that. What is he? Well, he's very intelligent and um, and he's dedicated to hard work. You know, he he those two uh, principles ensure that he reaches the rank of commander in eighteen ninety one. So he's he is, you know, getting noticed and doing well. Back to sea as an executive officer, first on the Sands Parale, <laughs> and then on the Victoria, uh, flagship of the Mediterranean fleet. Uh, uh, there's just something vaguely at the back of my mind about the Victoria. What could that be? <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll come on to it. it, uh, it this plum posting, it, it could potentially have been the end of him. <gasps> because on the uh, 22nd of June 1893, as Jericho lay below decks in his bed, struck mm, down, struck down by a fever, Admiral Sir George Tyron committed a gross blunder in manoeuvring his fleet as he ordered the leading ships in each of the two columns to turn inwards. Now, can you see where he went wrong there? Yeah, if I mean, you've got I, two fleets go. <laughs> two yeah, columns. so they're now heading straight for each other, presumably. <laughs> Guess what happens? Well, his subordinates failed for a, a, a number of reasons. To Well, mainly to, they're just bloody stupid. To correct his uh, elementary error, or indeed take the na- uh, necessary evasive action. And as a result, the ram of the uh, camper down crunched into thing. the side of the Victoria, which healed over and sank. Yeah, the thing about rams is they don't make a small hole, do they? They, they, they just cave in the whole side. Uh, so what, what, didn't you say Jellicoe was uh, below decks? He was, but uh, against all odds, he, he was rescued from the water, although Tyron and, and many others perished. A bit of a low point for the Victorian Navy, which has many low points in some. What, what do you think, it, what's the most obvious thing that this, this whole tragic incident uh, demonstrates? Well, it demonstrates largely the inflexibility of mind of many, if not most, of her senior officers. Well, what, 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 now there's, things have reasons, don't they? they you, can't, you can't just say that these people were inflexible in mind. Why, why are they so inflexible? Well, they've been brought up and drilled to believe that their admiral was second only to God with near papal infallibility, a bit Ooh. like you, Pete. Yeah, well, that is true, yeah. The I'm... inevitable consequences of such mental, mental atrophy... Atrophy. Yeah, I'm going for atrophy. Atrophy. <laughs> I wondered how you'd pronounce that. It, it bedeviled the fleet for many long years. Now, Jellicoe did survive, and his qualities are, are undimmed. Did by, he? But by, by his splooshing. That's good. Yeah. This would have been a very short podcast otherwise. Well, it would have been, yeah. And with the, the people have thought, why were they banging on about his <laughs> first great war? Anyway, um, he was uh, his, the replacement to Terran was uh, uh, Admiral Sir Michael Colne Seymour. Uh, who selected him to serve as a, as a commander aboard the new flagship, Ramillies, which replaced the Victoria, which is now in a little lie down at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Now, after a successful three-year commission, Jellicoe was made a captain. Uh-huh. And his gunnery specialisation was reflected on his appointment to the Joint Service Ordnance Committee in 1897. End of that year. So this is a bit of a list, but you've got to get... This is this, we've talked about this with Hay. You you can't just look at someone in the First World War. You've got to see where they come from. Yes, Pete. This is a bit of a lisp too. <laughs> right. I don't know why why I'm laughing. I've come where we are. Oh at yeah, the end, end of the year. year. Made flag captain aboard the Centurion, the Vice Admiral Sir Edward Seymour, uh, out in the uh, China Station. Mm. Um, now, uh, now, um, what? You, the, the trouble. There's trouble at Mill out in. 
Far East, didn't they? Aye, aye, happened. Trouble at Mill. What causes t- trouble at Mill? I think the Mill uh, that you're referring to is naked um, colonialism, Pete. Is it just Britain? No, Britain, France, Germany and Russia. They're all intent on cutting up imperial China for their mutual profit. And not unnaturally, stirred up considerable um, antipathy amongst the Chinese. And this this ends up in the in the Boxer Rebellion. It, it's a weird... I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Whatever I did know about this, I've forgotten. Well, it was basically a secret society, wasn't it? And they were violently opposed to Western penetration in well, mid-1900s. I'd be violently <laughs> Sorry, I could see I could see their viewpoint. Now, Nobody European embassy staff moving on quickly. <laughs> the European embassy staffs they were soon besieged in their Peking uh, legations. And yeah, they're sort of, uh, a lega- it's not just a it was, building; it, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's an area. Area. And Jellico was appointed chief of staff to a makeshift Anglo-German naval brigade, which was sent. Aren't in, the Germans the enemy? Which was not at that point. They were sent in by train to attempt their rescue in June 1900. Now, at this point, I, I do vaguely remember that the Chinese imperial troops start to almost assist or join in with the, the boxers, these mysterious boxers. And the railway line was cut, the mission had to be abandoned, and, and, and there was a retreat back to the sea. And it's a, it's a, it's a bloody nightmare, isn't it? And it, it almost cost Jellicoe his life, and, and I mean almost cost For the him second it. occasion, then, he's, he's uh, nearly lost his life. Yeah, but this time, it, it's... It's actually a bullety thing, because on 21st of June, Jellicoe leads an attack on a Chinese village, which is crossed their retreat line, uh, on the banks of the Peihu River. Uh, now, you're going to be, you're going to be the august figure of a... Captain. Captain John Jellicoe. I was hit on the left side of the chest, the shock turning me half round. I thought my left arm had gone sat down on a stone and cross-came, cut away the sleeve of tunic and shirt and helped me behind a house where I lay down. After a bit, Dr Sibold came up and bandaged wound and told me that he thought I was finished. I made my will on a bit of paper and gave it to my coxswain. I was spitting up a lot of blood and thought the wound was probably mortal. You need a doctor like that, don't you, frankly? Absolutely brilliant. Pop into the... Well, especially you, pop in for one of your almost weekly medical consults of your many problems. I could just imagine, well, you've had it. Yeah. Now, however, the uh, doctor's gloomy prognostications... Prognostications. They uh, proved wrong as Jellicoe was evacuated and made a good recovery. Although he did carry the bullet in his left lung for the rest of his life. And a bit of a memory. He'd have trouble going through the airport uh, little things, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> did he have airport X-ray machines? In... No, no, they didn't, did they? But, yeah, 1901, back to England then, and a bit of recovery time. He's appointed as assistant to the third sea lord, and controller Sir William May. This is basically on ship provision and, and all the all the various things about uh, building ships and looking after ships. Uh, um, and he was to inspect the work of the shipbuilders. Uh, now, uh, and and that, that's a that's a big job. Uh, it's an important job. It's dull, isn't it? So we're moving on. Uh, next sea command. He's in. What, what is he? Well, he's captain of the armoured cruiser Drake. Uh, and he shows great interest in absorbing the new techniques of gunnery, especially in the, uh, the introduction of firing practice at much longer ranges than had been previously considered. Yeah, it had been thought. It had been thought you couldn't hit things at long range. Uh, I mean, the, the ranges there were about three to five thousand, and then suddenly they go out to fifteen thousand. And this is the work of Sir Percy Scott. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about Percy Scott? Or should we just 
glide past that. Uh, no, I, he, he was the guy who um, branded the uh, peanuts, wasn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> that would have been good if he was. But in 1904, the then First Sea Lord, Admiral Fisher... Oh, we've heard of him. He called him uh, to work on the, the committee charged with developing the plans for the Dreadnought. So, Is that the actual Dreadnought ship yes, or the class? Yeah, that's the actual Dreadnought. Uh uh, and uh, he's yeah, it, it, this is the all big gunship. And Jellic, you know, obviously Jellico would be on the gunnery side of this. And uh, this is the all uh, the, the the ten twelve inch guns and the and the collection of anti. And then the, the only other guns it had were a smaller with a four inch. Can't remember Gary. Uh, but there's smaller guns to deal with torpedo boat destroyers. That's very small because that's only about the size of my hand. Yeah, and your hand is small. Yeah, four inch. And your legs are even smaller. Now, in 1905, Jellicoe was made Director of Naval Ordnance at the Admiralty with a special responsibility for overseeing the design and production of the heavy guns required for the uh, children of the Dreadnought. So that's the Bellarow from class, all the rest of the classes that follow on. Um, Promoted to Rear Admirals (laughs) in 1907. I've always thought that's a great... (laughs) Yeah, the the Navy bagged all the best titles. Vice Admiral, Rear Admiral. (laughs) They've got the lot, haven't they? Uh, he went to sea aboard the Albemarle, that's uh, pre-Dreadnought, as second in command of the Atlantic Fleet. <clears throat> what happens then? Well, he returned to the Admiralty as uh, a controller in 1908. And here, he dealt with the many problems of trying to expand Britain's capacity to produce Dreadnoughts during the height of the naval race yeah, in Germany. Yeah, we won't wait. We won't wait. Well, what, what sort of things limit it? Uh, what, why? Well, it's money, obviously, but the Parliament was bullied into it. But there's, the, the main thing is... We didn't necessarily have everything they wanted because we didn't have the docks that were big enough. And Jellicoe, he was an admirer of German-designed shipbuilding skills, and he kept warning that because they had what they were old, they were newer docks. They were wider. That's beam. You've got a large beam, and then so they 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 were wide. They could get a wider ship in, and that meant there was what 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 do you think if you've got more space? So you've got a ship that's four hundred feet long, but you can it's also yeah, you wider. can make it wider. So you've got more, uh, you've got more secure, superior underwater subdivision harder and, to and sink. compartmentation. Yeah, because the, harder you can, to sink. You can make uh, yeah, yeah, yeah just, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, so so what does he do? It's it, you can't just magic up a bloody great big huge. No, but what, but what? he he does do something. He commissions floating docks to repair damaged vehicles, and that eases the possible pressure on the limited availability of suitable dock provision. He also raised pertinent questions about the quality of British shells. Now, that that's something that uh, we haven't mentioned before, but that a lot of our shells... I mean, what, what is the fundamental thing you want from a shell? Well, you want it to go bang, largely. Yeah. Not just when it's fired, when it hits the other end. Oh, absolutely. You need it to explode. Well, arguably, you don't want it to go bang when it's fired. <laughs> that's a lot. That would be a severe fault. But, yeah, so it was a big problem. He's working on that, although, again, nothing can be done. Um, and at this time, as I mentioned earlier, his capacity for sheer hard work was invaluable. But, you know, he's under relentless pressure that might have broken a lesser man. Oh, yeah, he's, he's already your hero, isn't he? 1910, back to sea, first in command now of the Atlantic Fleet and then in command of the 2nd Division of the Home Fleet under Sir George Callaghan. Uh, he hoisted his flag aboard the Hercules. Now, what's 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 the Hercules that's special? Well, for the first time, he's serving aboard one of the dreadnoughts that dominated the naval race and in we, Germany, and which he worked upon in terms of design. Now, 
He's again involved, because of his gunnery specialisation, he's involved in trials of the new director firing systems. Now, I'd, I'd like you to perhaps run me through the technology of the director firing system, or, or you can simplify it if you like, Gary. Well, it, it seeks to direct and concentrate the fire of the multiple turrets on a, on a dreadnought. Is that why it's called director? Yeah, by the controlling hand of a single gunnery officer stationed high up in the ship. So he can see. Yeah, I can see a potential problem with that. <laughs> Yeah, they do have alternative arrangements, but yeah, oh, right, you're okay. thinking of him getting a shell through a bullet. Yes, yes, yeah. Now, uh, so so t- so now we're getting close to war. Now, uh, who so who who are the top men? There's right at this time, Fisher, first uh, sea lord, and the first lord of the admiralty, Who's one he? Winston Churchill, a particular hero of of yours. Oh yeah, didn't you know? I've often thought he's twice the man that I'll ever be. I think he is. He's only one and a half times the man you are. No, in terms of size, absolutely. Now, he, Churchill, had identified Jellicoe as the new Nelson, Nelson. who would lead the Royal Navy to victory in the Armageddon that both expected in the near future. I'm I'm with Spike Milligan. Armageddon on out of (laughs) it. God. Now, late in 1912, Jellicoe returned as uh, second sea lord to the Admiralty. I get confused about first, second, thirds and fourth They've each got responsibilities. We're not going into that. Uh, Now, here, he had to deal with the rambustious character of Churchill, who was never one to let protocol dictate the limits of his power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the law, the, 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 the... as as the he's not supposed to interfere. No, he's a politician. He's a politician yeah. in charge of the navy, but he's not meant to interfere in in, in dispositions of things, and he's not meant to bloody interfere in practical uh, sailor. No, type and the stuff. two were were conf- in conflict in in a lot of areas. But it's testament to Jellicoe's tact and reasonableness. They never actually fell out. He's, he sounds like us two. Yeah, it's only my tact and reasonableness that prevents. Trouble, it I is, feel. and indeed, when Jellicoe was given leave of absence to take command of the Red Fleet against the Blue Fleet, commanded by Callaghan, in the naval exercise in 1913, he did so well that despite the disagreements, Churchill still saw him as the coming man. Blimey! Hadn't yet arrived though. No, uh, well, this is this is this is bad. For this next bit shows quite a lot about Jellicoe's character, because as war's looming in early, in, well, the end of July, the war starts. Uh, we start on the fourth of August, but in that period, Jellicoe's warned he's going to take over from Sir George Callaghan as Commander in Chief of the Grand Fleet, as it would be known. Um, how does Jellicoe react? Delighted at the no, prospect of promotion? Absolutely appalled at the prospect Why? because he'd always liked and respected Admiral Sir George. Callahan. and uh, although he had natural ambitions to command the fleet he felt the timing couldn't have been any worse so he wanted to command the fleet but he would rather have waited his turn and or a, a better time yeah he recognised the uh, the anguish that would be caused to Callahan on his removal just at the very moment when it seemed that his whole career would be fulfilled by wartime command. And wartime command is what these admirals and these, well, like soldiers as well, it's what they, they yearn for. Well, it's what they've been trained for. It's not just sentiment, though, is it? Because Jellicoe is not that sentimental. Uh, what, 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 there's, there's something else going on here. Why is Jellicoe so, so, so upset about the whole thing? Well, there's something else at play. He's keenly aware that morale is a key element in warfare. It is. And if there's even a sneaking suspicion within the fleet that he'd in any way connived to get the command, he could expect very little loyalty from his aggrieved new subordinates. Now, in battle, that could be disastrous. That could be, that could be terrible, yeah. Um, 
the idea of change your command just as war starts uh, is inadvisable. Um, so let's go through some points. Well, there's a couple of points here. Well, firstly, how could Jellico be expected to be as familiar with the intricate makeup of the fleet, the officers, the, the as a man who commanded it for the last three years? He couldn't. And naval types are very protective of their makeup. Very amusing. Now, Jellico uh, could also boast only a cursory knowledge of the detailed war plans and dispositions. Yeah, he so he, he, I mean, he, like you, he's very quick at reading and understanding a brief uh, from your many years as a top flight executive. But nevertheless, he could not have the detailed knowledge that, that Callahan had. Of course he couldn't. No, so Jellico sent multiple telegrams to the Admiralty attempting to persuade them of the irrationality of what they proposed. Now, this is... Yeah, and, and they did. I mean, the, the telegrams exist. He did. Uh, and what did But they he, remain ad- adamant. They, naff they, off, they said. Yeah. Finally, on the 4th of August, as Britain entered the war, and despite his vehement protests, Jellico was ordered to open his secret orders and take command of the battle fleet, now renamed the Grand Fleet, and he was promoted to full admiral that day as well. Now, he's, uh, he's, so his duty, as far as the great British public and idiots like Churchill... Oh, I do apologise. Uh, the blessed Churchill. Um, the, um, the, 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 the idea is that he's got to deliver a new Trafalgar, a new, a new day. Uh, uh, the, uh, that's what the British people expected and demanded and had paid for. We, want eight, we won't wait all that. Uh, so he took over his staff, uh, his flagship, that's the Iron Duke, which was a... Uh, a, a very good, it, I mean, it was called a super dreadnought, but then it became just a dreadnought. It's a very good ship, very good ship. And his fleet, the Grand Fleet. Now, the what, Grand was fleet what was it? What was it? Come on, Gary, give me some facts. I need facts. It was boats. Boaty things. Boaty things. Now, the Grand Fleet in Jellicoe... Was, was boaty boat facing it? <laughs> no. The Grand Fleet that Jellicoe inherited was a formidable force. The concentrated essence of British naval power. Let's go through this. It numbered 21 dreadnoughts. That's full-scale dreadnoughts and later on. They are the all-big gun ships, and they've also got their range of 12-inch 12 uh, inch guns, and they've already come to 13 And the super-weapon of, of the time. Yeah, and already they've got 15-inch guns coming soon. That, so they're getting better all the time. What else do they have? Eight pre-dreadnoughts of the King Edward class. So they've got lots and lots of different types of guns uh, yeah. stuck all over them. Uh, still good ships, but probably not good if they met a dreadnought. No, they're, they're obsolete because of the dreadnought, but they, they're not useless. Well, some of them had only been built uh, uh, in the same period. So yep. 19, and, uh, the, yeah, 1905, 6, 7, 8, some of them. Right, so they were just outdated in the, by the building of the dreadnought so quickly. Uh, anything else? Yeah, there were four battle cruisers. What's a battle cruiser, Gary? It's uh, it's like a sort of smaller version. In the British sense, they decided that speed was the answer, so they were fast-moving, smaller cruisers, uh, but sort of midway between a cruiser and a battleship. Yeah, um, they, they were often as long as a battleship, but they have less armour and they're, they're faster. And yeah, the idea was speed would would be their defence. They've got a they've got the same armament as a dreadnought, but uh, but so so they're, they're powerful ships, but they haven't got a lot of armour. Now, in addition, there was a a, 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 a melange. Oh, you are. That's, that sounds like something that like goes with lingerie. Of twenty-one cruisers and uh, 
some 42 destroyers. Yeah. Now, in command of the first battlecruiser squadron, that's the uh, obviously the uh, the um, battlecruiser, <laughs> surprisingly enough. Uh, who's that? Have we ever heard of him? Well, he's a man whose future was uh, to become in, in, inextricably linked with Jellicoe, and that's Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty of uniform fame. Yes, uh, a man who was strict in his uh, enforcement of rules and people below him. But except for him. Except for him. Uh, 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 um, brave officer, uh, in some ways competent, in some ways slapdash. Um, bit of a dandy, I think. Bit of a dandy. Would be uh, a fair description of him. And uh, a lot of people don't like him because of the way he behaved after the war. Uh, and that that's quite interesting. Now, um, the, the thing about the dreadnoughts is they are the peak of early 20th century technology. They are excruciatingly complex and expensive machines. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very common analogy about what the Grand Fleet is. What is it? Well, basically, all the the eggs were in one base basket, weren't they? It's it's all it's the super dreadnought or nothing, and uh, and an awareness of this vulnerability was at the heart of Jellicoe's assessment of the naval situation. And I'm once more going to be the now admiral, uh, Sir John Jellicoe. It is interesting to compare this situation with that existing a century earlier, in September 1805. The month before Trafalgar, in addition to Nelson's force of 26 capital ships and 19 frigates, the Navy had, therefore, in commission in home waters and the Mediterranean, a yet more numerous force of 47 capital ships and 50 frigates. A consideration of these figures will show that the situation at these two periods was very different, in that in 1805, the force engaged at Trafalgar was only a relatively small portion of the available British fleet. But the Grand Fleet is all the eggs in one basket. Uh, and this would be at the root of all this tactical thinking. Uh, and, and it's also the overall strategic position because the fleet has a strategic importance, which, he, 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 which is his personal responsibility. And he defines this as... Our fleet was the one and only factor that was vital to the existence of the empire. So what he means is the British Empire couldn't withstand that if they were defeated at sea, the Grand Fleet was dis- defeated, then it was all up for, for Britain and probably the Allies. Well, this is your point about the complexity and expense and, and the all eggs in one basket issue, isn't it? So uh, the, almost everything the Allies do is underpinned by the command of the oceans that, that, that the Grand Fleet secures and 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 um, and guarantees guarantees yeah guarantees now it's against this background that uh, uh, Jellicoe begins to draft and issue formal grand fleet battle orders to guide and coordinate his new subordinates in action yeah that, now this is where his cautious demeanor he is generally a cautious chap uh, um, they found their natural expression. Now, Callaghan, his predecessor, had just issued a sort of review of the function of the different classes, uh, coupled with a, a, an injunction of for his squadron commanders to use their initiative, uh, i.e. nothing, uh, you know, basically. Yeah, uh, approach is uh, markedly how, different. How, how, I'm not how. sure I agree with it, but he was motivated by an earnest desire to bring as high a degree of order as possible to the mad confusions of battle. Control freak. Yeah. Now, through the Grand Fleet battle orders, his subordinates would be given their orders in advance, orders which sought to predict almost any eventuality of war and to provide ready-made answers. Mm, the overall Cent- tone was centralised. Centralisation. Yeah. And, and is he alone in this in the Royal Navy, would you say? 
No, I mean, it reflected the overall preoccupations of the Royal Navy in 1914. Now, for an organisation that worshipped leadership and assigned autocratic powers to the Admiral in charge, the Royal Navy was remarkably keen on stamping on all signs of individuality in junior officers. Yeah, from the moment they join the navy, they 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 are they are they they are disciplined and told to fall in line, to excel by devotion to duty and rigid adherence to orders, and not to use their initiative under any uh, under any account. And what happens when they become yeah, but an then admiral? On finally becoming an admiral, they are miraculously to blossom forth with the instincts, insights, and daring and command abilities of a new Nelson. It's that, complete nonsense. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Uh, Jellicoe's Grand Fleet battle orders limit the freedom to for, for his subordinate admirals to launch independent action. And that further reinforces the habits inculcated by their years of service, obedience and general falling in line. But it's also exacerbated by Jellicoe's failure in all of the hundreds of exercises undertaken by the Grand Fleet over the next few years to ever even rehearse the circumstances whereby independent action of manoeuvring might be required by a subordinate Now, this, this reminds me more of you when you were being ordered around the parade ground by a, a sergeant major. Yeah, hey, Private yeah. Bean! Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and and it's not designed to, to bring together a band of brothers, is it? Guided by a common set of principles to achieve a common end. It, by using an initiative yeah, within an overall framework. No, the that's need not... for control originated from Jellicoe's Where? desire to enter combat in a single line of battle. Because that's the, no, that's the traditional fighting formation of the Royal Navy. It's because uh, it allows every gun uh, to, to a broadside fire. Uh, you, you can't you can't get better than it. If you're in a line ahead, you can divert all your fire onto the opposing line. However, uh, there is uh, you have to get the, the other line. You've got to get the the enemy to to play ball, haven't you? Yeah, that's they can be difficult. Problem. Some of them. Um, now, independent action offered the chance of only minimal rewards, but now, massively increased the risk of a squadron. Uh, and this is the point. This, in this way, I mean, I don't agree with Jellicoe's approach, but if you allow your subordinate admirals too much leeway and they go f- yeah, off on go their, own, their own, thing. and they get caught on their own, then they'll be destroyed in a matter of minutes. Yeah. There's no coming back from it. And what does that mean to the Grand Fleet if you lose, say, a, a quarter of the ships? Well, they're in real trouble, as, as explained earlier. And, and actually, that's exactly what the Germans wanted if they were going to have any chance of ultimately defeating the Grand Fleet. They wanted to break it down into defeatable sections. Now, what? Uh, how, how did Jellicoe intend to fight the Germans? What's the overall way he's going to do it? Well, he wants to do it at long range. Uh, and that's to nullify the threat of torpedo attack and to rely on the massed heavy calibre guns of the dreadnoughts to absolutely smash the Germans before closing in for the coup de grace. Yeah, as, if, to use an example that hadn't happened, but like they dealt with the Bismarck. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he was aware that when battle came, it might be difficult to bring it to a, a decisive conclusion, yet he was determined not to take any unnecessary risks in trying to secure such a victory because he was very conscious of U-boat activity and torpedoes. Yeah, it, he, he was he was worried about the serious losses if they ran into any kind of underwater trap. Uh, the, the, the mines and torpedoes, they fill it. I mean, you probably lie in bed thinking of some floozy Janet, I think her name is, but uh, strangely enough, I lie in bed thinking of mines and torpedoes. <laughs> now, 
These, so did, so did Jellico. You have these, a lot in common with him. These anxieties, they're clearly defined in a forceful letter that's sent to the Admiralty as early as the 30th of September so 1914. He's barely got his feet under the table then. Barely. And I'm going to be Admiral Sir John Jellico, HMS. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Grand Fleet. The Germans have shown that they rely to a very great extent on submarines, mines and torpedoes, and there can be no doubt whatever they will endeavour to make the fullest use of these weapons. In a fleet action, especially since they possess an actual superiority over us in these particular directions. Now he then, he goes on to discuss exactly what he's going to do in these tactics in a battle. And he wants the Admiralty to know that these plans are cautious. And, and he's... he's what, he, this is something. This is something you are familiar with in business. It's either it's either endorse or sack. Back, back him or sack him. That's it. Not endorse. Why did I say endorse? And I'm going to be Admiral Sir John Jellicoe again aboard HMS Anjou. If, for instance, the enemy battle fleet were to turn away from an advancing fleet, I should assume that the intention was to lead us over mines and submarines, and should decline to be so drawn. I desire particularly to draw the attention of their lordships to this point, since it may be deemed a refusal of battle, and indeed might possibly result in failure to bring the enemy to action as soon as expected and hoped. Such a result would be absolutely repugnant to the feelings of all British naval officers and men, but with new and untried methods of warfare, new tactics must be devised to meet them. I feel that such tactics, if not understood, may bring odium upon me, 
but so long as I have the confidence of their lordships, I intend to pursue what is, in my considered opinion, the proper course to defeat and annihilate the enemy's battle fleet, without regard to uninstructed opinion or criticism. The situation is a difficult one. It is quite within the bounds of possibility that half our battle fleet might be disabled by underwater attack before the guns open fire at all, if a false move is made, and I feel that I must constantly bear in mind the great possibility of such attack and be prepared tactically to prevent its success. Oh, wow, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is prescient stuff that you could be describing the Battle of Jutland there uh, and this is 1914 he may have only mentioned submarines and mines there but you've got to laid by mine layers are destroyed but he, he's really worried about low visibility also the chance of running into a, a destroyer because if there's mists about you could have 20 destroyers come tearing out the mists and and uh, this is especially if he hasn't got the Harwich oh, I can never say Harwich Harwich force. Uh, they're, they're meant to be with the Grand Fleet, but they have to sail up to join them. They might not be there. It, it's really dodgy. How does the Admiralty do? Do they, do they sack him? No, on the 7th of November 1914 they reply fully endorsing Jellicoe's intended actions. So whatever you can say, whatever Churchill says or anybody else, it had been understood. Uh, uh, right. Now, this if you understand that, you understand what happens on the 31st of May 1916. Uh, that it, these principles guide him. He's not the sort of fly-by-night. If he's got principles, he's going to stick to them. Now, one of his immediate ta- tasks, uh, how did the, Brit- the Royal Navy previously blockaded its enemies? Well, by uh, by close blockade, Pete. Blockade, Pete. And, and he's got to wean them off of that. Now, well, why can't, why can't coal-powered ships sit outside uh, Wilmshaven for uh, two years? Well, a coal replacement of coal, but but he's worried about the emergence of the submarine and uh, the prevalence of mines and the ever increasing threat posed by fast destroyers. That makes close block- blockade impossible. So it's not only impossible because you can't just sit there like Nelson sat outside. No, you can't. He sat outside. But, but there's a there's a danger and a threat if so you do. It's impossible, and if you try it or or do it, you'll get ambushed. Yeah. And the Admiralty and Jellicoe were aware of this and they sought to introduce a distant blockade encouraged by the, the uh, circumstances of geography. Now, now you've we, mentioned we all, this before. We all know that got mittens, that God's with the Germans, uh, or, or they were got lovely. Or they've got mittens. Well, it's one of them. Uh, but actually, uh, got mit, uh, mit Britons and this, because uh, why, why, why? Well, because the British Isles themselves effectively blockaded off the Germans, laying as they did four square across the sea routes to Germany. Yeah, there's two gaps. One of them's a narrow one. Can you guess which one that is, Gary? Uh, the English Channel to the south. It's yeah. only around 20 miles across at the Straits of Dover. And that easily can be blocked. Easily blocked, yeah. blocked by mines, blocked by destroyer forces and pre-dreadnought forces. Yeah. So, uh, not, so, not quite so easy to the north, Pete, is it? What's the, what's the size there? Well, that's more like 200 miles. So that would be about 10 times wider. Yes, between Scotland and Norway. Now, that's a, a small force of uh, cruisers uh, backed up by the whole Grand Fleet. Because where did they base the Grand Fleet, Gary? Where? Where? It, it's uh, Scarpa Flow. It's, a, it's, it's uh, in the Orkneys. That's it. And we uh, want to visit. We, we want to visit. And on the way, we'll visit that battle site where your ancestors fought to doubt. Baines yes. Hill. Yes. Or is it Baines Mound? I thought it was Baines Disease. Yes, that's a terrible affliction. Right, so um, so that's there. Now this, so this means is the North Sea under British control? 
No, they've, they've effectively ceded absolute control of the North Sea. It remained open to, to both sides, but it what it does do, it secures for Great Britain almost all of the benefits of control of the wider oceans across the globe. So, North Sea is open to both sides, although soon buggered up with minefields that are here, there, yeah. and everywhere. But outside of that, which is nearly everywhere else. Yeah. Once, and then remember, they destroyed the commerce. Yeah, I mean, under the blockade, the, the German fleet's effectively under house arrest. And uh, the impasse can't be broken unless they uh, successfully assaulted the jailer. The jailer being the a, Grand Fleet. In a major fleet action, yeah. The Grand Fleet, yeah. Now, so that's, uh, he defines the parameters within which he'll act. It's going to be distant blockade. It's going to be cautious tactics in battle. He begins a programme of exercises to bring his, uh, the Grand Fleet to a peak of efficiency and the Grand Fleet battle orders to, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, what, so what sort of things are the exercises working on? Well, if the manoeuvring, station keeping, signalling, gunnery and damage control were the language of naval warfare, the Jellicoe's determined that his men would be fluent in all of them. Uh, independent thought and action? No, no I mean... Night, that... night actions? And, and I, I, I'm, that's not a no, that's just something... No, I know what you mean, yeah. Uh, because uh, what happens but, at Jutland? But that's, that's the, the problem, isn't it? You, you can try and have an order for every circumstance, but you're not going to have every circumstance. And you can't... Poss- and night action demands... Uh, different things now uh, uh so how do the grand fleet that they 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 probably love george callahan well, yeah uh, how do they th- what do they think of this new this, this new bloke who's come in uh, with all this hard work and the rest of what do they think of him well any doubts they had they're, they're they're soon washed away by the combination of his manifest competence and as we've mentioned previously his capacity for hard work and one of the staff aboard his flagship uh, uh, HMS Iron Duke was greatly impressed and you're going to be yeah I'm going to be Lieutenant Commander Roger Belairs of the, uh, aboard the Iron Duke and his staff now what's interesting about this is Jellicoe is a nice man and I think this comes across in his quote Jellicoe worked with an amazing rapidity to see him there reading dip- dispatches and memorandum making pencil annotations and corrections interrupted from time to time by the mass of matters and signals requiring immediate action, was to see a man who, through years of training and control, had brought the power of concentration to a fine art. Physical fitness was combined with this power of concentration. Never did the writer see him out of temper or anything but cheerful and infusing everyone with the joy of carrying out the work in hand. His calm outlook never deserted him, Care and responsibilities were, when possible, thrown off last thing at night by the reading of thrillers of a particularly lurid description. I used to call them yellowbacks. And I, I remember, well, the first time I read that, I remember thinking, he, he's really human. Uh, and I imagined him, you know, in his cabin, go reading, ooh, reading, reading. And then suddenly, you know, I could just imagine... Why are you winking at me? Reading. <laughs> right. Um, I, 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 do you think he... I, I'm not sure admirals are as bad-tempered as generals. I was just thinking he'd get on well with hate because he was very even-tempered, wasn't he? Yeah, hate called him an old woman. <laughs> now, for two years, the two great fleets wait, but little happens beyond the skirmishes between the battle Which cruisers. are generally disastrously handed by one uh, David Beatty. Yeah. Uh, now then good. what happens? In 1916, Ooh. Admiral Reinhard Scheer takes command of the High Seas Fleet. Yeah. The overall policy doesn't change, but Scheer was determined to exert systematic pressure across the whole gamut of uh, naval warfare. Yeah, 
you're going to try and ambush the ground fleet by drawing them out uh, across minefields or, or across lurking submarines. Hang on, uh, isn't that what uh, Jellico yeah. said? Tip and run raids on East Coast ports. Uh, his idea is you go and bombard East Coast ports. Probably well, unless you bombard Sunderland, which obviously nobody yeah. could care about. But if you, you know, but uh, the rest of the East Coast, they're not going. Uh, you're going gonna, to react. You're, you're going to react. They're going to. Are they going to send ships down as fast as possible? Perhaps you can ambush them. Uh, tax on British convoys to Scandinavia, uh, neutral Scandinavia. Wow. Uh, what's up? All the time, confusion of action to gain a temporary local superiority and erode the British superiority in, in what I referred to once as brute numbers. Yeah, now that's exactly what had been predicted from the start by Jellicoe in 1914. And the result is the Battle of Jutland. We're not, oh, we've done a podcast on this, it may not be available now, I've just realised, but we'll do it again in a couple of years. Um, uh, so, so uh, we're not going into the battle in anything except thematic. So, uh, total forces at Shear's disposal. What are they? Sixteen dreadnoughts, eight pre-dreadnoughts, five battle cruisers, eleven light cruisers, and sixty-one destroyers. Whilst Jellico had twenty-eight dreadnoughts. So that's twelve more. Nine battle cruisers. That's uh, the, the, the uh, four more. <laughs> well done. Eight cruisers. No idea. That's that's three more. And 26 light cruisers, that's 15 more, and 73 destroyers. Which is interestingly only 12 more. So the Shear is strong in destroyers. What did we say Jellicoe was worried about? Yeah. Now, the, the numerical advantage was very much with the Royal Navy. Yet there were subplots that rendered the situation more complex. Yeah, because Nelson, I mean, his ship... The Victory, it was very similar to the same ships from 150 years before. Known quantities. It's men. They, they were using the same sort of guns, weren't they? They were trained to fight broadsides. They could fire their broadsides two to three times faster than French or Spanish crews. They knew that. Um, yeah. One British ship worth how many? You, you like statistics. Let's have a made-up statistic. One British ship was worth how many French ones? Well, it was worth two or even three. Because they could fire two or three times faster. Yeah, but Jellicoe ships, they're deeply flawed creations. Ow! The battle cruisers had inadequate armour. This is the point about, you know, speed will be their defence. And the dreadnoughts had not got the underwater subdivision and resilience that he knew the Germans possessed. That wouldn't be such a problem, but it's still important. There's also problems with the British range-finding equipment and uh, their shells. Still were uh, unreliable. Uh, So in both defence and offence, the British would be found wanting. Now, there's something else. Uh, Was the British Matelot superior in every way to his German counterpart? Not at all. Uh, I I mean, the Germans uh, were superbly trained uh, and and at least equal in skill. Yeah. So uh, now, did did, did Jellicoe have a band of brothers like Nelson did? No, Strong, independent officers? No, he absolutely didn't. Um, it's arguable that they weren't capable of taking their own decisions in a common cause. Which was partly Jellicoe's fault. Yes. And partly the culture of the Royal Navy. But that, that's it. Now, in the event, Jetland was a disappointing battle for all sides. A huge, sprawling affair. It's not the place for us to talk no, in no, detail. No, no, we're not going to talk about it. I wonder what you could read. What you get. could read is a book called Jutland, 1916, by... Uh, Peter Hart and Nigel Steele. That's a good idea. It's a cracking book. Get it for about six quid. 
Yeah, uh, if you search Amazon. around, you get it even cheaper. Yeah, don't tell them that. All oh, right, I okay. Now, many draw the lesson from the battle that, that was needed was bolder, independent action from Jellicoe's subordinates. Yet... Disasters occurred when admirals acted rationally. Oh, give me an example. I can think of one example right now of, of an admiral acting rashly. Well, in the early stages, Beatty dashed off into action against the German battlefield. You battle remembered. Cruisers. Yeah, I do. Without waiting to concentrate his forces to secure the support of the mighty 15-inch super dreadnoughts of the 5th Battle Squadron. So he left them. Do you remember? They were, they were left yep. behind. They were five miles apart when they met and then... It was 12 miles before they'd blinked because he just dashed off without telling them. Now, as a result, two British battlecruisers, the Indefatigable and the Queen Mary, were blown up uh, because um, speed proved no substitute for the inadequate armour. Yeah, and and the other... Now, they may have blown up anyway. I find all that nonsense, this business, that they definitely wouldn't have been blown up if they... Well, you don't know. We don't know, but the point is it didn't bloody help to leave your main force behind. Um, there is one defining moment I want to talk about in the battle when Jellicoe displays all his calm, his leadership, his his, his slide rule thinking, and it's when the Grand Fleet has to go from uh, six columns into a single line. Um, now he considered all the options, and uh, a Captain Frederick Dreyer captured me. the moment when this slight, self-effacing man made the decision that. A could have changed the whole course of history. Yeah. And you're going to be Captain Frederick Dreyer on board HMS. Yeah, he was, he was next to him on the, on the bridge, uh, well, probably in the uh, conning tower. But uh, this is what Dreyer says. I then heard at once the sharp, distinctive step of the Commander-in-Chief. He had steel strips on his heels. Bloody irritating. I hate people like that. He stepped quickly onto the platform, round the compasses, and looked in silence at the magnetic compass card for about 20 seconds. I watched his keen brown weather-beaten face with tremendous interest, wondering what he would do. With iron nerve, he had pressed on through the mist with his 24 huge ships, each weighing some 25,000 tonnes or more, until the last possible moment, so as to get into effective range and make the best tactical manoeuvre after obtaining news of the position of the enemy battle fleet, which was his objective. I realised as I watched him that he was as cool and unmoved as ever. Then he looked up and broke the silence with the order in his crisp, clear-cut voice. Well, now Jellicoe decides to form up on the port column. The starboard option would have exposed his ships to grave risks. Yeah, and some idiots suggest a central column, which was a completely unknown manoeuvre and would have led to utter disaster. Carry on, Gary, you're going to be... Our hero, Sir John Jellicoe. I'm gazing now at your keen brown, weather-beaten face with tremendous interest. My first natural impulse was to form on the starboard wing column in order to bring the fleet into action at the earliest possible moment. But it became increasingly apparent, both from the sound of gunfire and the reports from the Lion and Barham, that the high sea fleet was in such close proximity and on such a bearing as to create obvious disadvantages in such a movement. I assumed that the German destroyers would be ahead of their battle fleet, and it was clear that, owing to the mist, the operations of destroyers attacking from a commanding position in the van would be much facilitated. It would be suicidal to place the battle fleet in a position where it might be open to attack by destroyers during such a deployment. Now, I'd quickly want to say that you can actually see the Barham in the film uh, The Battles of Coronel and Falkland Islands 1927, so you can see it in all its majesty. 
but unfortunately, less you can, majestic. You can uh, uh, also see its demise on YouTube, where it, it, it's uh, it was filmed when it was sunk by a torpedo. On that the was horrible, horrible. November nineteen forty-one. Now, um, he deployed on a port column. What did he achieve by that? He, well, <clears throat> he crossed the T, didn't he? Yeah, and and that's the classic requirement, isn't it? And and it gives an advantage of better visibility for his gunners and offering the chance to get between the Germans and their home ports. So he's done all three, all those three achievements, cross the T, he's, uh, he gives them the better vision and he's now in between the Germans and home. What a, I mean, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. All done at the last possible moment because Beatty didn't tell him where the German fleet was, Yeah, and, by and the way. subsequent criticisms been based only on vague generalisations born of optimistic thinking, a fatal combination. Yeah, and half-wittedness, like suggesting the central column. I think Churchill did that. Now, um, later, something similar happens when uh, his line of dreadnoughts is threatened by a torpedo. Uh, torpedoes. Uh, the Germans launch an out-and-out destroyer attack to cover a retreat. Now, he turns away from the threat rather than towards it, as some idiots have since recommended. Well, Yet, one of those idiots is the uh, former high, uh, uh, first sea lord. It just bloody shows you that... Uh, but he know. made his policy clear right from the start. He, he wasn't going to run the risk of serious losses from torpedo attacks and mines. He yeah. always said he would do that. Grand Fleet is too... As Churchill said, he's the man who could lose the war in an afternoon. It's too important to risk... Uh, Even so, in that battle, he gets a lot of excellent tactical positions. He does inflict severe damage to numerous German ships. However, what's the problem? Well, uh, just as he'd warned in the pre-war years, the the German ships are actually quite difficult to sink. Now, the final phase of the battle was the night action, which really exposed the weaknesses of the night fleet. And these are weaknesses which Jellicoe is partly responsible. What what happens? Well, time after time, Jellicoe's officers sought certainty before committing to the attack when sighting German ships, with the result that the Germans escaped almost unscathed back to port. Dawn brought a terrible disappointment to Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet. Who is this Dawn? As they gazed on the empty sea. The battle was over, but who won? Well, yeah, the Germans, they've sunk three battlecruisers, three armoured cruisers, eight destroyers uh, for the loss of one battlecruiser, one pre-dreadnought, four light cruisers and five destroyers. Uh, 6,094 British sailors lost their lives compared to 2,252 Germans. But, uh, but hang on, victory is never just counted in, in losses, is it? So, no. so that's a, a temporary tactical and material success uh, It's a for crushing the strategic victory for the British because in the end, they're, they're back in port. Well, what's All, the great question? The great question is, uh, what, <laughs> did Shear achieve his intention at Jutland? Did he isolate a small portion of the British fleet and destroy it? No. No. Uh, so they'd failed. They hadn't done it. Did the British destroy the ground, uh, the, the uh, high seas fleet? No. No, but they didn't need to. But they didn't need to. They did batter them to buggery to use that fine old technical military. The uh, British losses were painful, but they're quickly replaced. They're back at sea the next day with almost the same number of ships because they've got ships uh, reserved. There's no there. room for sentiment in no, war. No. It's the most brutal of the sciences. And Jellicoe... Uh, had not needed to destroy the German fleet to attain his basic strategic no, he hadn't. Now, shortly afterwards, but let's admit, everybody's disappointed. There's no two ways about it. Now, Jellicoe, 28th of November, he's called ashore to take up the position as first sea lord. Uh, now, this is, uh, it's it's a controversial period. It's not his finest hour, is it? Um, it, it 
What what's the big problem facing the Admiralty in nineteen well, late nineteen sixteen and nineteen seventeen? What is it? What could it be? Oh it's unrestricted submarine warfare. It's what? Gary, could you say the unrestricted Unrestricted uh, Submarine Warfare. Forgot what it was. <laughs> now the German answer to the, it was the German answer to their strategic impotence. Yeah, so they, they 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 relied on it. What do, what does unrestricted submarine warfare mean? It means that America comes into the war. It even well, dooms the Germans. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, so how does Jellico respond to to the threat? Well, he, he's, he's as ever he's methodical, and uh, he established an anti-submarine division at the Admiralty to examine and uh, coordinate the response to the threat. Now, unfortunately. Yeah. That's as far as his inspiration took him. He's a he's always been a detail man, hasn't he? All his career, we've talked about it. He, he's overcome the problem of inadequate subordinates by a high degree of centralisation. I, I know in your department you had subordinates like Chris Carlin, who you had to highly <laughs> had to make sure they were highly watched and you know just detailed supervision he was highly motivated but i, he, I did on occasion have to spank him yeah <laughs> yeah but now, it was at his request usually yeah now he'd cope well enough at the grand fleet in my view uh not perfect but the admiralty what, what what's undermining him at the admiral well he's got he's, he's got some health problems he's got a bullet in the lung remember I can't he's suffering it. from exhaustion and stress hardly surprising really and it all seems to have prevented him from uh, discerning with su- sufficient speed what with hindsight was the obvious solution oh, we'll come back to that um, um he is right. There's no one obvious thing to do. There is no one answer to the U-boat problem. But it should have been obvious that there was one thing that would make a difference, a real difference. What is that one thing? Gary, Gary, what is that one thing? What what should have sprung to mind? What should he have been quicker on the uptake with? Well, it's the introduction of a convoy system. And let's face it, Britain had employed that in times of war since time immemorial. We'd always had convoys. That's and A convoy is basically vulnerable merchantmen are gathered together into a convoy with an armed escort to protect them from commerce raiders. It... it, 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 it because that means the seas are not full of helpless victims. They're, they're, if you want to get the helpless victims, you'll find them surrounded by ships with bangy things. To yeah. use, sorry, I, don't, I hope I'm not being too technical. No, me. but it, you know, if you're even if a submarine locates a convoy now, it's exposing itself to attack from the escort. And, and let's remember, saying. the sea is a big place. So if you've got one convoy on it, yeah. Now Jellico could see only problems. What problems? Well, he blanched at the sheer complexity of the administrative arrangements required to organise thousands of ships into convoys. Yeah, that were ships of different speed, different owners, different captains. Yeah, different he also t- pointed to the shortage of suitable escort vessels. Every destroyer is a destroyer that's not with the Grand Fleet. He's shorter destroyers escort vehicles. He feared the carnage should they run into a minefield. Not particularly likely in my view, but yes. He fretted over the practical problems of maintaining convoy speed or coordinating the zigzagging courses of ships of vastly different capabilities. Yeah, both the ships and the, and the uh, ship's captains. Uh, that, there's an underlying uh, lurking fear that is out of place. What does he feel? Well, he just thought it would merely gather together potential victims for an orgy of destruction should the U-boats getting amongst them. Uh, like the idea of a U-boat pack, I suppose, which is a Second World yeah, War Second thing. World but War, yeah. Now, uh, the pressure for convoys grows, grows and grows. Uh, and when, when, when Jellicoe tried a couple of experiments with convoys, what was the result? 
Uh, well, it, dramatically, it dramatically reduced the losses, as it, it would. It, it would. Uh, now, the US de- uh, declaration of war in April 1917, that also eased slightly the shortage of naval escorts. It does, for a while, and then they start to come on stream quite better. Uh, but still, it's slow. A fully-fledged convoy system, it, it takes a while to bring in. And shipping losses stay high throughout the summer of 17. It's not a quick solution because he never brings in the proper uh, convoy thing. What is he? He's still still, swamped, isn't he? Yeah, it's it's either from the real or imagined practical difficulties of the convoy system. And in consequence, there was no drive in the implementation of the policy. What's his overall attitude? I think it's a dull pessimism at this time. This, by the way, is when he demands that, uh, hey, clear the, the... Belgian, the, the U-boat bases from the Belgian coast is part of the impetus towards Third Eve. And, 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 and I can't remember what exactly Haig says, but basically he calls him an old woman. They, they meet and he... And Angelico isn't an old woman, but, he, but at this point he has begun... It's a dull, lethargic, pessimistic approach, isn't now, it? Now, gradually, the rate at which Allied shipping's being sunk begins to fall in a direct proportion to the number of ships travelling in convoy. At the same time, the numbers of U-boats sunk begin to rise. And almost despite itself, the Admiralty had stumbled across the solution to the submarine crisis. But nevertheless, it's too late for Jellicoe. And to be honest, uh, he doesn't deserve the credit for the implementation of convoy system. He just doesn't. I mean, it was done under his, mostly under his watch, but he didn't lead the drive. It should have been a lot quicker. Exhausted he was, exhausted. And I can see this, the stress of commanding the Grand Fleet and the rest of it. And he's dismissed on 24th of December 1917. That's the end of his war. Um, it, it is the finish of, of his of his uh, naval time and... In, 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 um, but the, the, for me, this is a, there's a, a coda to this. It's a nice story, what happens to Jellicoe afterwards. Yeah, he seems to regain much of his intellectual vigour in the post-war years, and he was able to give a clear exposition of his actions in command of the Grand Fleet at Jutland, and, uh, and, and it aroused much admiration by his dignified refusal not to respond in kind to some of the uh, more scabrous attacks. On really horrible attacks, Butler. Yeah. And it's, it, what's done, it's, it's perfectly obvious it's coming from Beatty because it's his acolytes that are making the attacks, isn't it? Yeah. And, and Jellicoe is dignified. His mind just bounces back. For, it's as if it had a huge weight on top of his bonds and taking it off and his brain started to work again. Clearly. Yeah, he, he also writes prescient reports warning of the dangers posed by the increasing naval strength of Japan and indeed he'd prove a very popular Governor-General of New Zealand. Uh, you see, I think I've read those accounts. That, that, that I've read them. I can't remember much about But he warns distinctly that Japan is going to be trouble. And, and again, this is... This is the Jellicoe we like, the Jellicoe clear thinking. Well, but he doesn't last that long, does he? When? No, he dies on the 20th of November 1935, and uh, he's buried at St Paul's Cathedral. Now, um, there's been a lot of controversy. I, I think, actually, it's resolved in Jellicoe's favour between the relative abilities of Jellicoe and Beatty, uh, especially in how they exercised their, uh, their uh, commands at Jutland. Uh, and this is blurred by Beatty's appalling behaviour in the post-war years when he abused his position as First Sea Lord, not only to defend himself, that's fine, but he also uses it to blacken indirectly usually, which is obvious but 
unpleasant. The names of Jellico and also a guy called Evan Thomas. Yeah, he was commanded uh, the Rear Admiral Sir Hugh Evan Thomas. He, he was commander of the Fifth Battle Squadron. He was on the Barham. Barham. Yeah. Barham. Now, in theory, Beatty certainly possessed many of the right instincts for a fighting admiral. Does he? He, he applauded the idea of decentralisation of command and encouraged initiative in his subordinates. He did not lack the courage to take big decisions in moments of crisis. No, it, yeah, and uh, you know, um, he rarely did anything but close the enemy. I mean, the, uh, the, I, find, I find some difficulty in this because he lost a lot of ships doing that. Yeah, but the Royal Navy that fought the Second World War was clearly built on the principles that BT has been held to espouse. Yeah, I'm not so sure about how far he went along a decentralisation route himself. A bit like uniforms is the sort of thing he says... Um, yeah, right. so in a sense, perhaps Beatty could be therefore seen as the future. Angelico, a faulty <coughs> Beatty is a faulty example of the future. Yeah, Angelico represented the technocrats of the Edwardian Navy that had swept away the crusty cobwebs of Victoriana. Yes, I wrote that for you. It, that's real. Rose. That's just purple yeah. shite. Angelico's <laughs> a natural centraliser, a technocrat. technocrat. Yeah, he's, he's got a mind like a slide rule. And thought processes that travelled smoothly along the grooves of cold grooves of cold logic. I don't actually know how a slide rule works either. So I've it just <laughs> moves along. Hmm. Now, the issue's surely more complex than this. Jellicoe may have been hamstrung by natural caution, but his country had good reason to be grateful for his cool yeah, detachment. because we said when the crucial moment came, despite the lack of sighting reports from his subordinates, which subordinate was most guilty of not providing uh, reports? BT. Yeah. Uh, he made the perfect decision on how to deploy the Grand Fleet. He crossed the Germans' T. Uh, most desirable of any any naval not maneuvers. just once not just once twice and uh, crossing the team means every gun in his sh- the, uh, his ship fleet his line could fire at just the head of the germs who couldn't respond at all hardly and the front three or four ships were smashed uh, to bits now he did make mistakes it'd be impossible not to in well that uh, the, the, i mean do you know how much they could see uh, uh, what 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 makes the visibility in in late may worse the smoke from the guns, yeah, absolutely. Has anyone ever come up with any way of uh, any way that anything he should have done with the visibility of in- ah, ah, before you say something, Gary, with the bad visibility and with the, the lack of information, anything that Jellicoe could have done better? Well, most armchair radical solutions proffered to the problems that he faced at Jutland involve hindsight, huge risks, and a large amount of luck. That's and that's not Jellicoe. That's not his way. That's not his way. Now he couldn't, and he wouldn't risk the Grand Fleet and the future of his country on the lottery of being able to successfully evade a mass destroyer torpedo attack carried out in bad visibility. I think he's right. I'm I'm sorry, but I do think he's right. Um, He was thwarted by that poor visibility. And and also, and we haven't mentioned this now, but we've got to mention his own tired decision to disregard the signal intelligence received from the Admiralty during the night action. That might have enabled him to ambush Shear's fleet at dawn on 1st of June 1916. But do you know what? He was knackered. He'd been up the best part of two days. Uh, he'd had information from the Admiralty before that was wrong, and he just didn't believe it, and he, he, he made a bad decision. Now, overall, Jellicoe, he, he surely deserves his place as a great British Admiral, alongside the likes of St Vincent and uh, Rodney, perhaps. Perhaps Jellicoe's reputation suffered most of all because of what he wasn't. What wasn't he? Well, he wasn't a new Nelson. Oh, that's what this talks about. It wasn't even the old one. 
it wasn't, no. Now, <laughs> Nelson was a unique creation of the opportunities provided by British naval superiority. He is. He's the culmination of centuries of naval war- warfare using tried and tested machines of war. He, and, and there's something else. All, Nelson had all... He put, Played the game. They are the game of war. Yeah, yeah. but he's got the uh, the dice loaded in his favour, hasn't he? Why? He's got reliable ships, brilliant subordinates, superlatively trained men, and this is important, a weak enemy. And the German high seas fleet is not a weak enemy. And for Nelson, that was all underpinned by a knowledge that even if he'd lost a battle, it wouldn't have been the end for the Royal Navy or the British Empire. Well, so what did poor old Jellicoe have then? Well, we've discussed it. This is what this talk's been about. What, what did he have? Well, he's got dodgy ships. Weak subordinates. A superbly trained and equipped enemy. And he was all too aware of what one last thing. Yeah, he was the one man who could lose the war in an afternoon. He did the best he could. And in our view, yeah. that best was... Uh, uh, the best, that, the could best be that could be done on that murky late afternoon and evening, the 31st of May. I don't think anyone could have done much better. And uh, the war is as you find it at the time, isn't it? Uh, that That's the situation that faced him. I don't think there could have been a victory on that day. Could, I, couldn't Beatty have done better? He bloody could, but I don't think it would have made any difference either. I think the Germans would have escaped. Anyway, that's it for today. I've enjoyed that. It's a longer one than usual. Gaza. Longer one and uh, not so many quotes, uh, but some, some good history in there, Pete. We thought so. Yeah, thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?